Hi folks, welcome to Bradcast, the official radio show of uh, Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Yusuf, and I'm joined here with... Your co-host, Liam Clifford. Great. And we are here with Indra Bishnoi, um, who would also share with us what Bishnoi has to do with sustainability as well. So Indra is a SOC sustainability chair and also doing her PhD in neuroscience. So we're really excited to have you, Indra. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yay. Um, Very good. So tell us about yourself and really how you came to be interested in, in doing what you're doing right now in neuroscience, including research on cancer. Yeah, so I actually did my undergrad here at um, Western. Uh, I did it in psychology and actually I got a double major in sociology as well um, because the social side of things and policy has always been really interesting to me. Um, but sort of as I went on um, and joined a number of labs, I started to be more interested in sort of neuroscience um, and sort of cognitive psychology. Uh, so once I started in this lab, I actually started as a sort of like a work study student. Um, and the PIs, Dr. Ozenkop and Dr. Cavaliers that I work with were just amazing. Um, what I was doing was really just super interesting. Um, and I've always wanted to work and do work in animal research um, and getting that opportunity in a really um, safe environment was really a great opportunity for me. Um, so I decided to stay. Um, I did a master's and just rolled over into my PhD in January. Awesome. Um, yeah, and so my subject matter has completely changed. Um, now I do more work um, on cancer. Yeah, and I would love to go into that, yeah. Very good. So looking at it from a social science perspective, to make that transition to the lab, what what challenges did you experience along your way and what about the lab intrigued you to carry on and working with it further? Yeah, I guess um, one of my biggest challenges was actually when I came into the neuroscience program because of course, um, just by the nature of it, you have to know or should really know a lot of biology, chemistry, physics that really have to relate to your project and actually a number of other projects, uh, which is really nice because you get this breadth of knowledge that at least for me, I never experienced before in my psychology degree. Um, but it was also whether it was a challenge, but it was also such a good opportunity because my undergrad, like I said, was more social policy, um, more on the social sciences in general, but getting the science side of things was lacking. So the fact that I've been able to do that in my master's and PhD has been actually a really good opportunity for me. That's super cool. I mean, having those sort of uh, wide fields uh, in, say, immunology as well, cancer research as well, and behavioral sciences as well. Um, how did you shift from, say, your interest in psychology to this whole new adventure in your research? Yeah, so actually it was pretty, it was a pretty smooth transition because my lab is actually a behavioral neuroscience lab. Um, so it carries neuroscience and um, psychology hand in hand. Uh, so the gist of what I do, at least for my PhD project, is I look at anticipatory nausea and how to combat it. So I usually don't give a definition of anticipatory nausea. I usually give a little scenario, which gets a bit dark. So Yusuf, thank you for your background right now. <laughs> um, but basically, um, God forbid, but if you or a family member of yours that's close to you um, gets diagnosed with cancer, 
Um, of course, this is something that I would, you know, it's a horrible scenario to imagine, but it helps get the point across. Yeah. Um, you're driving to the doctor's office, you get diagnosed, and you're just going to your first chemotherapy appointment. Um, you go into the hospital, you sit in the chair, the nurse is trying to just calm you down because it can be scary to go through this procedure. Um, but it also is a life-saving therapy at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. So you know that this is something that you, of course, want to go through. Um, you're going through the therapy and suddenly just nausea hits you and you're just vomiting. And the, the, the nurse had a bucket ready because actually 80% <laughs> of, no, really, because 80% of people actually end up experiencing this nausea, which is called chemotherapy-induced nausea. And it's actually the biggest reason for chemotherapy dropout. I'm really surprised. So, are, are you just to be clear about the example? Mm -hmm. Are you are you saying that uh, I have this anticipatory nausea because I have some past experience with? So, yeah. So, um, so actually, just to continue further with the example here, um, so that's just chemotherapy-induced nausea, and that's not really anticipatory nausea yet because the anticipatory is really this. A learned or conditioned response. So say you're going through your chemotherapy appointments, you're on your third or fourth appointment, you park your car or your loved one parks the car for you, you know, you get into the hospital and right when you get into the hospital doors, suddenly this nausea just takes over you. You're not even near your, you know, where you go through this chemotherapy. You're, you could literally just be picking something up from the hospital but this nausea has flushed over you and you just want to vomit. So that's where the learned parts comes in, where something, so like a context, like a hospital, even brings about this nausea, even though you're not actually going through the chemotherapy right now. So that's actually what I look at and trying to combat. I, 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 don't, I don't know what's more sad, somebody, someone being exposed to that or even just rejecting, you know, or their body rejecting the the very the very place that's meant to to help them. Uh, you know, that's 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 irony if I've ever heard that. When with that being said, is is there sort of a, a moral cause behind your research? Is this what's inspired you to to help these individuals through their their troubles? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think generally I'm one of those people who find it difficult to even, there, there's so many things that you can focus on in life, right? Like there are so many bad things in the world as there are many mm -hmm. good things, right? So I'm one of those people that finds it tough to let go of one bad thing that's happening and focus on others. But especially when it comes to cancer, and especially when it comes to something I might talk about later, sustainability and climate change, um, these are really things that it's hard for me to let go of because especially something like anticipatory nausea, having to literally drop out of something that is by its name a life-saving therapy is just it i just cannot wrap my head around it so yeah that's definitely something just devastating to think about i was i mean that is really sad as well that millions of people's lives are saved every single year and yet you have these sort of psychological emotional hindrances sort of pains that allow um that cause people to adopt some other approaches as well. But I was thinking in your research on anticipatory nausea, you must have come up with some other hindrances as well for people to avoid these um, therapies, chemotherapy, for example. Um, 
uh, are there some things that that are all, play a significant role in these sort of hindrances to remit to cure? So that's actually the major part of my research. Uh, so right now, the therapy that's out there is um, serotonin related. I won't go into, again, the bio of that too much. Um, but basically what it does is it really just treats the symptoms. So what it does, it, it will reduce somebody's vomiting, but it actually does nothing, absolutely nothing for the nausea. Um, so that's where animal research comes in super handy because, um, fun fact, rats actually can't vomit, uh, but they do go through this experience of nausea. So when you're trying to find something that's actually dealing with nausea, this is kind of the perfect animal model and actually one of the most common ones. So that makes it really amazing too. Just a small follow-up as well. Uh, can you tell us more about what nausea is and how it's distinct from say vomiting? What's that feeling like? Yes, so nausea is more the psychological feeling of, um, I guess it's, it's related to disgust as an emotion in some way. Um, and it's related to a really evolutionary useful thing where for example if we have ingested a toxin we want we have the psychological psychological feeling of it being pretty much disgusting and we just of course want to get rid of it and this has been completely useful to our ancestors right like having something that could literally kill us and us vomiting it out has saved our ancestors lives time and time and again so it's not really this feeling that's a bad thing it's just that when it's when it's something that occurs with a life-saving therapy it becomes something of an issue yeah, and, and I, I think it's really interesting to look at the, the trajectory of, of, of humankind as we see it and how, you know, that these responses are not just reserved for modern day humans and that, mm -hmm. you know, looking back hundreds of years, even thousands of years, that these responses have existed in time. Now, you're obviously dealing with some, some pretty difficult things here, right? You know, you're dealing, I think we've all had a loved one who has undergone some sort of form of cancer treatment. Plus, you also have ethical issues such as the animal research and even any humans that are involved in your trials. How do you even begin to navigate these difficult emotions while you're undergoing your research? I guess one thing that I always tell myself is I feel like a single rat in one of my studies has done more in, for science than I ever will. Mm. Um, so it, it's definitely an interesting way of looking at it, but I think it's important to realize the importance that um, animal research has and really appreciating that. I know uh, somewhere in the world they have a statue of, you know, a rat in science um, with the DNA helix and it's just, it really speaks to how much, you know, animal research has done for humans, even though we mm -hmm. haven't been able to do too much back. But I think looking at it that way and looking at, you know, the people that, you know, sometimes even give their bodies to this, right? And, mm -hmm. and regardless what their family says or regardless what issues they might be dealing with themselves, it's just, it's such a sacrifice that you, you literally cannot um, go a day actually without thinking about. So it's something that I greatly appreciate um, to make, you know, tomorrow of, you know, these, these animals don't even know these people that they could be helping in the future, right? So it's, it's such a nice sacrifice to think about. Yeah, a sort of, um, a sort of uh, animal kingdom unification or, or uh, some sort of bond mm -hmm. of sorts. So that's very interesting. Now, I'm, I'm intrigued by um, the psychology you've brought into it. How do you feel, how do you feel 
your psychology background has aided your research? Do you do you find you you um, you go back to it on the regular, or is it just something that comes often in hindsight for you? I think for me, it's more of a I would say a hindsight thing for me. It definitely helps, of course, when I'm doing general research because, like I said, I'm my field is behavioral neuroscience. So there's always been an aspect of um, behavior in every single study that I've done or helped out with um, in this lab uh, where psychology has been useful. Um, but I think going forward, just given the trajectory that I'm on, um, learning more of the science side has been um, something that I've had to look into a bit more because of course, when we're talking about evolution, talking about psychology, these are things that um, come up in conversation, but in terms of going forward, they aren't at least for me, have been the most helpful. I guess I was wondering, have you, Indra, have you had um, a discussion with your peers or friends as well on the ethics of um, using animals for these important benefits in, in medicine? And uh, have you had those back and forth with your friends, I guess? Yeah, so actually, this is a back and forth that I've even had with my supervisor. Of course, um, yes. <laughs> yeah, so they've been, of course, doing animal research for um, 60, 70 years. They're definitely older. They actually just retired last year. So um, that was a really nice thing for them. Um, but yeah, we've had these conversations. And, you know, one of the things that one of my PIs always say is, I've made it through human ethics way faster than I've made it through animal ethics, you know, like the amount of, um, you know, just the administration around animal ethics is insane. And I, and I feel like it only gets greater every single month. Um, you know, like even right now, I have been waiting on, um, waiting to do animal research for three months. Um, actually, I guess this whole year, but, you know, more actively for three months versus a lot of my friends who are doing human trials have already begun with, of course, safety precautions given COVID. Um, so I can, I can definitely understand what they mean. And, and I'm glad at the end of the day that there are a lot more hoops that you have to jump through with animal research. And I'm definitely thankful for that. And I, I certainly think it's fascinating how the debate is ongoing um, as to whether animal research is a positive or negative thing within the discipline. I th and I think that's, I think that's super important that those conversations are still being had. Now, mm -hmm. speaking of the research and this whole virus, which seems to have plagued everyone in more way than, than another, how has this affected your, your overall trajectory with your PhD? Yes, so it's, um, like I said, I've pretty much been waiting since January to really get much done. And it's, uh, what, August, almost like mid-August at this point. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's, um, it's been, it's been rough, <laughs> but I hopefully, I think that I can still get it done because um, just, because I just transferred into my PhD and got renewed with the scholarship um, that I have three years on, I think I can make that do. Um, and pretty much the, the really good thing with behavioral neuroscience is that if you want, you can get your studies done pretty quickly. Um, with little to no difference for the animals involved, right? It's literally more you um, just taking on more, but um, in terms of the morals or the ethics of it, it's the same. So that's the really good thing about behavioral research for its flexibility versus a lot of other research, which um, has to be done, you know, in a certain amount of time.
Yeah, I had a very specific question. Um, Indra, you had sent us um, a bio, essentially a synopsis of, of your research. And you in in that bio slash synopsis, um, the term microbiome metabolites came across. Could you please explain to me what the heck those are and how they are beneficial for your research? Micro what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> so that was, um, that is definitely something a line I like to use in the research because, um, you know, like that's how you get those science people's attention, right? Mm, but in terms sure. of what we're actually dealing with on the ground, everybody needs to understand this stuff, right? Um, so yes, I will definitely expand on that. Um, so like I was saying about anticipatory nausea, um, what's really interesting about it is that in my lab um, we've been working on ways to combat that right so one thing i said was right now the treatments that exist uh, deal with the vomiting side of things but the animal research is really useful uh, for the nausea side of things um, and that's what my lab looks at so there's been um, a lot of recent studies from coming out of our lab that have basically given and this is to answer your microbiome question here um, parts of gram-negative bacteria, and I won't go into that too much, and I'll just keep it to um, components of bacteria okay. to keep the general audience here, um, that can actually lead to a number of behaviors, and these behaviors are called sickness behaviors. Uh, so some that you might recognize are fevers, for example. Um, others are reduced activity levels. Uh, but one that is common but less talked about is learning and memory deficits. Uh, now that's really interesting because although you know you would never want to experience these learning and memory deficits in and of themselves, and they don't sound so great, when you think about anticipatory nausea and this learned nausea response in order to combat that you know something that actually leads to some learning deficits might be good as long as it's targeted so that's what we're doing so what we do is basically we give these components um, of gram-negative bacteria um, to rats and what we've seen actually is that well, normal rats will develop a nausea response to this uh, toxin, as I was speaking about before, um, and that's a completely normal response. But eventually, in three or four conditioning trials is what we call them, um, the rats are just placed into a box in these conditioning trials, by the way. Simply after the fourth day of them just being in the box, no substance, no toxic substance at all, they are nauseous. And that's just a normal rat. However, when these rats are given these components of gram-negative bacteria, they actually don't develop this at all. But the problem there, it's a great solution because it sounds super preventative. It sounds like, and this is replicated year in, year out, study in, study out. So this is very replicatable. The problem here is that it's more of a preventative approach. As I said, about 80% of people actually get chemotherapy-induced nausea, and about 30% actually get um, this anticipatory nausea, which is the step worse, or I guess um, as, as you wanna look at it, it might be worse. Um, and this is again, like I said, 80 and 30%, not 100, right? So we can't really just be giving um, activating the immune system, especially people that already have some type of cancer, um, to every single person. 
So it becomes difficult to have this preventative therapy. So what I'm looking at instead is once this anticipatory nausea has already been developed, can we then combat it with this gram-negative bacteria? So basically, what that means is in my research, if a rat is just given that toxic substance and after the fourth day, as all rats seemingly do, develop this even put into the context or the box, they're showing these nausea responses. Can the bacterial toxin after that actually reduce this nausea? So that actually has not been looked at at all, but it's easier to take that to a clinical trial um, more than something preventative right now. So of course, just working in the limits of science and clinicians. <laughs> very, very interesting. Yeah. Go ahead, and... Yusuf, sorry. No, okay, yeah, so that that is Lots super cool, there, and uh, I, yeah, maybe we can do a second in second interview on this actually. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so so, what do you hope to? Um, when do you hope to have some results um, to confirm or disconfirm some of these hypotheses? You know what? In a world without COVID, uh, right now, uh, <laughs> but. Given uh, everything with COVID, uh, like I said, I'm just waiting for my approval. Um, been about three months now, but I'm hoping that that'll be soon. So I hope to have some results by Christmas um, and then do some analyses early next year and see where that takes me, because that could really be um, something moving. And if you know, I'm really being able to replicate these results, I'm thinking about potentially taking them um, to human trials if that's possible for me. So, so speaking of COVID, actually, I was thinking um, you'd also express that you are the sustainability chair of Society of Graduate Students here at Western, and uh, and I was I was wondering, well, can you tell us more about what you do as a chair of that committee, and also a little bit about your I read about your climate action plan and the kinds of works that are happening. And given the difficulties COVID might have also have with that action plan. So I think I asked like 17 questions right now. So go ahead. No <laughs> um, let me know if I don't answer any of them. I'm, they're, they're great questions. Thanks, Yusuf. Um, yeah, so I am the chair of the sustainability committee here. And thank you so much for looking over that action plan. Um, we have a lot on our plate right now, you know, it's yeah. with COVID, it becomes difficult to be pushing climate change because, you know, <laughs> there is a pandemic, you know, so, but it's yes. just, all right, but we're going to have something, I'm not going to say worse, but, you know, really bad as well coming in the next couple of years if we don't deal with this issue as well. So it's been tough trying to convince people, especially now, to just pay attention to this. Um, but something I'm noticing is that people are paying attention and especially grad students, there's a lot of engagement. Um, you know, a lot of our people, a lot of the members of my committee are actually going to be done this September, but it seems like I already have a bigger committee for September in terms of people who are interested. So it's been really good in that sense. Um, we actually just sent out a survey. Um, it's more of a climate action and sustainability survey to grad students uh, just last week, actually. And basically what that survey is trying to get a hold of is what people's thoughts are on uh, SOGS, so this is uh, the Society of Graduate Students and also Western University in terms of what they're doing 
uh, for sustainability, climate change, environmental action, um, and more the perspective of what people think people are, uh, these institutions are doing, but also the policy behind them and how SOGS can hopefully improve its policy in terms of environmental initiatives and climate change, and also Western at large. So that's really a lot as well, but um, yeah, that's what we're currently doing. It, it certainly sounds like you're keeping busy in all of this. Now, with our other members of the audience who perhaps aren't grad students or members of SOGS or even affiliated with Western, is there any way that the, they, they can access this material? And if, if not, what would you say to them about how they could help should they choose to? Mm -hmm. Honestly, I think sustainability at this point should be a part of everybody's lives, you know, whether it be just something every day as recycling or composting or the like. Um, but in terms of the undergrads potentially or people who aren't classified as grad students, um, I would definitely say that get involved with Western sustainability. Um, even my committee works very closely with Western Sustainability and that's a committee that or a group that we even look up to. So if you want, I would really, really suggest getting in touch with them and seeing what they're doing um, because they have some really amazing items on their list as well. Um, I would also say um, get in touch with the Climate Coalition Crisis Group um, because they are all about changing Western's policy in terms of climate action. Um, and people can are very free to reach out to me if they want me to connect them with literally anybody in terms of sustainability at Western. And I think this provides the perfect segue for the end of our road. Indra, is there any websites or contact information that you'd like to leave off with so that people could reach out? Yes. Um, so I would probably just say my uh, website. Uh, so just to spell that out, that's just my name, I-N-D-R-A-B-I-S-H-N-O-I at, sorry, um, dot com. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Indra. It was a pleasure to have you on our show. And honestly, I think uh, given your work on sustainability as well, you should uh, hopefully uh, join us again some someday um, in a few months and tell us more about what is happening and how things are changing. Um, and we can we can have a special episode on at Gradcast uh, <laughs> as well. And uh, thank you. So, um, I guess we're at the end of our uh, conversation. This has been Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Uni University of Western Ontario. I've been your host, Yusuf, and my co-host was Liam Clifford. We've been here with uh, speaking with uh, Indra Bishnoi, and um, this episode was produced by me as well. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we are on the radio at CHRW 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. I hope uh, this message can be trimmed in for future episodes as well. Thank you for listening and have a great night. Cool. Wow, that was awesome. so fun. Yeah.
Yeah, yeah. I like that. That was good. Yeah, no, you know what? It's I, I honestly do find the research fascinating and I think I think you'll get a lot of traction because so many people have relatives, family, friends who who have cancer and have gone through this. So super pertinent. Well done. Yeah, you 